Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everybody, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon, your host, and today we have Elizabeth Hardgrave. She's a game designer, and whoa, game designing, that just is so out of my wheelhouse. I find it fascinating, and that's what I try to do. Have guests here I find fascinating and ask all the goofy questions that I wanna know the answers to to hopefully help you create out loud. Elizabeth's best known for her best-selling game, Wingspan, about birding of all things. Also, Tessie Mussy, the Victorian language of flowers, and Mariposas. She's won all kinds of awards. And we're going to talk about what was it like to leave her full-time job as a policy analyst and become a game designer? What did that transition look like? What's it like to sell a game? What's it like to design a game? Wait till you hear how many spots she had on the spreadsheet for Wingspan. Come on in and let's learn about game design. So how does Wingspan, your best-selling board game, centered around birds, have anything to do with trolls and castles? <laughs> it was inspired by the fact that I did not want to make a game about trolls <laughs> and castles. That's a really bad question. But I was playing a lot of hobby board games, which starting back in probably the 1990s, there were a lot of games coming, especially out of Europe, were like really engaging people with interesting decisions. You know, this is not Monopoly or Sorry, where you're like rolling dice and they tell you what to do. It's like making really interesting decisions about what you're doing. And and I found these games so interesting and engaging, but so many of them are about things that I'm just not inherently interested in. So, you know, after about a decade of having been playing these games about castles and trains and dwarves and whatever, zombies, there's a lot of zombie games for some reason. Yeah, I just decided to try and make one about something that I actually care about. I find that just so exciting because how often as creatives do we not pay attention to what we want and what we want to create. And it would have been so easy for you to go, well, I obviously have to create a game about zombie castles. Well, that was really like the inspiration for me even thinking about the concept of making a game. Like if there had been games out there that I wanted to play, I'm not sure I ever would have become a game designer. But I sort of saw this whole of like, I like the way these games work, but I other subject matter. I love the idea that what we want and what draws us forward draws our creativity forward. And just honoring that and paying attention to it. I really believe that if you have a yearning for something that you want to see in the world, a movie, a book, a game, chances are other people do. But one of the things I see clients and students do is go into their creative cave and create that thing they want to see without having any conversation with the people who might use it, love it, need it. It's got to be a back and forth, I think, for real success. But that's scary, right? That's really creating out loud. But Elizabeth does a great job of that. So let's learn more. So game design 
to me is such a mystery. It's, it feels like it must be like playing chess in four dimensions. And you know, you talked about creating Wingspan. You have three games, that we'll talk about um, each of them a little bit, that you talked about drawing on the information from eBirds. And, and I live with a man who is a birder and who has done a lot of his professional work in the birding field and conservation guy. So I, I'm not a birder, but I understand birding. Yeah. <laughs> so you did seen all it. this. Right, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've done a little bit of it. I, you know, so I live with a passionate birder. It's been a big part of his life. You've done all this work when you were creating Wingspan with data, science, the science from Cornell Lab of Orthology. I can never say that word, which is really embarrassing when you live with a birder. You built a spreadsheet. You had 596 rows by 100 columns. I mean, <laughs> what can you lead us into what that's like in your brain to create a game? I can't even wrap my mind around it. I didn't start that big. My first draft was just little slips of cardstock, you know, cut into cards, handwritten in pencil, like, this is what could go on some cards. And if I move them around the way I think this game would work, would it actually work? Just like playing against myself, right? <laughs> and then iterating from there. You know, that first set was probably 20 cards or something of just like, does this even work? There are certain structures in other board games that I sort of piggybacked on. I'm like, okay, there are, you know, often you're acquiring resources and then using those resources to buy things. So what would the resources be for birds? They need food that's out in the world and then you can get more birds. A few core ideas that really stayed with the game the whole way through of like okay if this is my core vision like how can I try to make that work and then just playing and iterating and playing and iterating and it got bigger and eventually ended up in a spreadsheet because that was the easiest way to generate the cards and keep track of the card information but it ended up in the very end having 170 cards in the box but for the most of the time that I was working on it it was probably closer to like 50 to 70 cards because you just need to see how all the pieces fit together and once you have a structure that works you can add on to it Hey, did you hear my puppy in the background? Way in the background, you might have heard some barking downstairs. That's my new papa, Will. She's so cute. She's a Springer Doodle. She's a Springer Spaniel and a Poodle. And if you want to see pictures of her, there's way too many of them on my Instagram, Jen Loudon. <laughs> Elizabeth, one of the things that you said is that you have these elements that you started with. And I find that so important for creativity. And I think sometimes we overlook them and we think we have to make everything up whole cloth, right? And you talk about in one of the interviews you did that there's a game designer and programmer, Mark LeBlanc, and he has eight kinds of fun. That's the name of his book. Sensation, fantasy, narrative, challenge, fellowship, discovery, expression, and submission, whatever that is. <laughs> and that you have a list and you ask yourself, how many of those am I using? Is, is that some of the way you went into game design and started to actually you know, have a model of it? Or was it more from your own playing or a combination of the two? I think in the beginning, it was more from my own experience as a gamer. And then as I've gone along and sort of, I did a lot of reading along the way. But when I first started, it was really just like, I know how games work, right? I've played a ton of them and really just kind of like feeling my way around. 
but yeah, there are different frameworks. I also try when I'm starting now on a game to really sit down and like, okay, I have this idea, like what's my core vision? Who do I think would be my core audience for this game? Is it families with their kids? Is it people who are like really serious, hardcore people that want to play a game for three hours? Like who's the audience? What's kind of the story I'm trying to tell or the experience I want them to have? Those sorts of questions. I find that really helpful because so much of game design is playing your game with other people, getting their feedback on how it worked for them. And if I sort of have a core vision of what I'm trying to work on, that gives me a lens to interpret all that feedback through. And sometimes the answers to the questions change. Like sometimes oh, this game is really turning out to be much more complicated that, you know, and I was originally thinking it was going to be a game for families and then I need to decide okay do I want to run with the complications that I've added and now this is a game that maybe you know only teenagers are going to be interested in and not younger kids or do I need to back off of some of that complexity and steer myself back to my original vision that this is something people will play with eight-year-olds but I think it's really helpful to have some touchstones along the way of like where am I going with this? It's going to change a hundred times before I ever even pitch it to a publisher, but what's the core? So you have to have that end user in mind. It sounds just like writing a book. I think there's a lot of parallels between getting a game published and, and getting a book out. Yeah, I was, for I sure. was thinking yeah. about that as I was reading about you and following the journey of the games. As you're talking about developing it, you know, I've looked at these pictures online and I see you at tables of people playing your games as they're being developed. Right. And it made me squirm because I like to go into my creative cave and make something and then go, ta-da, here it is. But there's no way you could do that with a game. There's a real vulnerability to it. Yeah. And it's something I really had to learn to get over. It was terrifying the first time. I mean, it's one thing to show it to your friends because usually your friends are going to be like, oh, Oh, you made a thing that's so cool right like they're not going to be super critical a lot of playtesting situations there's a group here that meets at a local board game cafe and now I know all the people there you know you're also just getting random members of the public that heard there's a playtesting event and that they can come try unpublished games and give their feedback on them and that's you know a cool fun thing to do on a Saturday afternoon so you're playing it with strangers a lot of the time and you just have to let it go and know that most of the people that have come to this event are there because they understand that your game is unfinished mm. and that you know that it's unfinished and they're there to help you make it better. Great. I'm giving you something that you can work on with me, right? Like there is plenty of room for improvement. That's what we're here for. That's the purpose of this event. Because games are about playing them with other people. Like you can't see it in action without getting those other people involved. And the more different people that you have play it, the better and more well-rounded the game will get as you get all that different feedback about what works, what's confusing, how is everything working together. And then there is another level of playtesting that I like to do. I have sort of my core group of friends that are game designers now that I get together with and we'll play each other's games. And then, you know, that set of people are sort of thinking about things from that sort of more theoretical framework a lot of times or just have a lot more experience thinking about like, okay, this isn't working. Why isn't it working? Let's mm -hmm. really think about that. And they also have even more understanding about the process and how, so it's not scary for me to show an unfinished game design to another designer now, because they know that every game they've ever started working on also started out really bad. And you just got to start somewhere. 
So I love that distinction between the general public, if you will, the users, mm -hmm. and then having that core of professionals. And yeah. I think the same thing when I'm working with writers is you have to be really mindful about who you give your work in progress to. And you have to really think about if you're going to give it to Aunt Julie, why are you giving it to Aunt Julie? And what kind of feedback is she able to give you? Do you therefore ask those general game players certain questions or do you just observe them and see what rabbit holes they fall down or what isn't clear or what isn't engaging a lot of it is what you just said just like observing how the game is works and working and especially if i don't play with them and i can just watch like that's super valuable and it's something i've missed so much in the last I year bet. oh my gosh the pandemic to not i thought about that a yeah. few times when i was when i was diving into your life and your work i'm like oh my gosh this is such a a hands-on Everything about what you do and what you make and how you make requires people. <laughs> and a lot of designers have moved online. There's a couple programs where you can actually kind of simulate the whole game called Tabletop Simulator and another one's Tabletopia. And, and you can put sort of your raw materials, the cards and cubes and whatever into this program and you can move things around with your mouse. What I've realized over the last year is that a lot of my playtesting really is just the watching the people, not watching the stuff. And you just don't get that. Because one of the things I'm fascinated and I love to talk about on this podcast is people's creative processes. Because I think part of creating out loud is making sure we're actually noticing how do I best create? Because there's so many people out there that will tell you, well, you should do it this way. Mm -hmm. And so I love that you observe that. Well, it's actually observing people playing that helps me make the game better. Like that sounds like gold out of this. Oh, and you were asking, like, time. do I do I have specific questions? Oh, that's and, right. And, right. Thank you um, for having a memory, yeah. Elizabeth. <laughs> that's one of us. <laughs> and I do often I'll start off. I try not to be like, so what did you think? How did, you know, did you like it or not? Because right. that's not really the point because I know it's not done, but it's like, what are the, were your favorite things? Like what are things in here that I definitely shouldn't change? And then to give them permission and say, and what are the things I need to work on the most? Then sort of go from there. And, and often it's, you know, people have specific recommendations of how things ought to work like aunt julie might say oh you don't have any fairies in your story and it <laughs> needs fairies because she's a huge fan of fairies and again you have to like know what your core idea is and whether fairies fit with it or not my producer jeff pointed out that there is a note under the note because he's a screenwriter when people are talking about I want this, but it's completely out of the project, right? So Aunt Julie wants fairies, but there's no fairies in the project. What are they pointing to? And I tend to be one of those people who are just like, they don't get it, right? Oh, it's completely a waste of time. If we've asked for feedback, what can we get out of it? What are they pointing to that we may have to dig into? They're not gonna know. We're gonna have to suss it out ourselves. It could be super valuable. So there's definitely a lot of filtering that goes there. But then also the question can be, what would the fairies mean to you in this? Like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve by adding Oh, that's fairies, brilliant. Right? So even though you know you're not going to put fairies in right. the bird game, <laughs> that, for example, or Mariposas or Tessie Mussy, we'll talk about right. those two games in a sec. You know, like, yeah, there's no, that's not what I'm up to, but what is she missing? 
Right. That's right. Cool. That's just brilliant. So speaking of your other games, there's Wingspan, currently Tussie Mussy and Mariposas. They're all nature-based games. And you said yeah, in another interview that so many people have been like, why don't you do a game about climate change, specifically yeah. about climate change? And you said, I've been wary of going there because I don't want to give people more anxiety. And one of my other side projects is called Create Plus Climate, trying to get artists, creatives, thought leaders of all kinds to talk about climate change in their own way. And I'm all about hope and stubborn optimism because our brains turn off in the face of shame and fear and we give up. Do you have any thoughts if there is room for board games to help us with this? Matt Laycock, who designed the game Pandemic, which was another big hit board game. Great he's actually working. Yeah, he's he's working on one. He is. About climate change um, with some other designers. And I've talked to him a little bit about it, especially during the pandemic. I was like, I cannot even think about like staring into the abyss and thinking about how to make a game about how to make a like, game make out it of it. Fun. Or at least just not a total downer, but experience. You know, you can use that heavy topic to give the game a sense of tension, mm -hmm. which makes it, you know, feel exciting. But you need to also have people feel like there is hope and that they have control and that the decisions that they're making matter. But every game you've created has a truly gorgeous aesthetic. I mean, they're just gorgeous was that, does that have a deeper purpose for you? Does it express your values? I mean, in part, I can't take much credit for it. It depends on the, the publishing situation, but ultimately in the contracts that I've had, the publisher has all the authority and the responsibility for finding the artists and you know overseeing their work. But they do consult me. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's a certain aesthetic, even in my prototypes, by the time they get to the point that they're getting pitched to a publisher, there's certain things about how Wingspan looks that actually look pretty similar to what I had just mocked up. That's a whole another interesting, like, oh, yeah, no, let's you have go to try to make your prototype visually consistent with where it is in the process. You don't want to put a first draft in front of people and have it be beautiful because they'll sit down to play it thinking that it's a pretty polished game. Oh, fascinating. This is something I've talked to some other designers about. And, or just like my first draft is always just quick and like figure out what works. And then as I'm working on changes to it, I'm just naturally like making it look better with each iteration anyway, because I just like things to look pretty. Even then, the prototypes as I give them to the publisher are like decent looking, but nothing you would publish. And then they go out and get professional artists and graphic designers that just take it to a whole different level. They've sort of consulted me on like, are there people you want us to reach out to who are artists who might want to work on this or, you know, we found this person, what do you think, kind of thing. And then the artists kind of go off and do their thing. On Wingspan, the artists consulted with me quite a bit, actually, as they were picking their reference photos for doing their drawings. Or what kinds of poses do you want in the card? Like, what are, what are we going for with the look? Can we go back to how you physically make prototypes? Yeah. What, do you have like a <laughs> studio? Do you have an art <laughs> Do you have to teach yourself how to, that sounds difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely sort of an arts and crafts aspect to it. 
<laughs> depending what you're making and different people have different approaches some people are very like by hand just drawing stuff because that's what comes easiest to them I often will do that for my first draft because I try to force myself to stick to the philosophy of like do whatever's fastest to get something on paper and like playable because I know whatever I try first isn't going to completely work and it's going to have to change and like spend as little time as possible I do. I've started messing around with some dry erase on acetate because that's like super easy to change and, and like lay things over. Like if I know a certain thing about the board is pretty fixed, but I'm not sure how other stuff is going to work. I'll like print some of it, but then write on top of it. For cards, for me, is almost always spreadsheet-based because there are programs that will then take all the information in your spreadsheet and populate the cards for you. So you don't have to make each card individually. The title of the card is in this column. And so take the word that's in this column and put it at the top and then take the number that's here and put it where I want the score to go and like saved a lot of time when I figured that all out. So there's that's a lot awesome. of sort of tricks and, and that you've learned like as you've, that, that I've learned over time. Have you, have you gone yeah. along and found community and, and and I'm sure community of game designers. Yeah, and there's definitely, you know, another one is like print things on sticker paper, because right? then you can stick it to the cardboard and cut it out, and then you've got like chunky pieces that are easier to handle. I didn't know sticker paper was a thing, but you know. <laughs> All the little things that we have to learn in whatever craft yeah. or whatever medium or craft medium we're exploring. And I love how clearly delighted you've been in the learning of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. the the geeking out on it. That That's awesome. When you're inventing a game, is there always a way that you start? Do you start with the cards? Do you start with the board? Do you start with the user? Or is every game different? That's a good question. Yeah, I think it's like whatever... Like Wingspan, I definitely started with the cards because I wanted there to be, you know, one species per card and for it to be a, a game where you're, we're playing with lots of different bird species. So that was clearly going to be card-based. Mariposas was not card-based. That one I knew I wanted pieces moving on a map because I was going to be telling the story of the migration of the monarch butterflies. And so that one, I definitely wanted it to be like a movement-based thing. And now the movement is based on cards, but I actually tried several different mechanisms for like, how do you decide how much you get to move and where? Wait, um, tell me more yeah. about that. that. That's fascinating. <laughs> like what other mechanisms are there? There's dice, is that one? Yeah, so dice could have been one of, so the board is a grid that has lots of different, five different kinds of flowers on it. And you're picking up the flowers. And now those are sort of a thing you use to then make more butterflies. But at one point you could also use them to move. So the, the moves that are on the cards one card will let you move four spaces and get one flower and another card will let you move just a few spaces but get more flowers. So, sort of, you know, trade-offs like that. And I had those sort of assigned to the flowers themselves. And so you're picking up those flowers and then they fueled your movement, but it, it just wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> I think I tried dice at one point, but dice-based movement is hard to make it feel fair because it is so possible to have games where like someone just rolls higher numbers than another person. So it's random. Not, it's random and you have to have a lot of dice rolls for it to even out across all the players and feel oh, like for, for the probability to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's it like to be a woman in the board game space? That's been changing a lot. When I first started playtesting Wingspan, it was very common for me to go to playtesting events and be the only woman there. And out of how many Which, people? 
out of, you know, a dozen designers. Okay. Maybe that's changing. I would say it's harder now for me to be like the only woman. It comes out of our real history in like Dungeons and Dragons and board gaming more generally, them being very male dominated pastimes, especially gaming in public. Like, I think a lot of people game at home with their families, and that's like very gender integrated. But to be the kind of person that wants to go and do it in a board game cafe or whatever, it's historically been a lot of guys in the back of their game store for whatever reason. And then because it is so segregated, it like can be uncomfortable to break into that scene. And then it sort of is self-perpetuating, I think, is part of whether, you know, those guys might be happy to have you there or not. So when I think back on my gaming, board gaming history, and I think back all the way to high school, it seems like it might have something to do with trolls and castles. A theory that there is something to that. And, you know, no one's really out there doing empirical research on this. But <laughs> I do feel like it is possible that all these board games that were designed by guys in Europe created sort of an audience of people like them who were playing the games. And then all of the next generations of designers coming after them were people that like to play those games. And it makes right? sense, doesn't it? And then it, it becomes sort of self-perpetuating. I think that by bringing new designers into the that come from different demographic groups, we will probably see more variety in the games that come out. And I think that more variety in the games that come out will also bring more gamers in from different backgrounds. The feedback loop can go in either direction, right? It can be- It absolutely can. It's the same thing in getting people- people... or bringing people in. Yeah, it's the same thing in, you know, yeah, in every field. And you have a section on your website, Black Voices in Board Games. Is that part of- the reason you're doing that part of your work is lifting up other, yeah. a more welcoming, integrated, interesting space. Yeah, absolutely. I also have a long list of women with published board games on my website because when Wingspan first came out and I was getting lots of interview requests because it was doing really well, I had a lot of people say to me, like, you're one of the only women designing board games. <laughs> you're like, no, Which no. is actually not true. <laughs> May have gotten a lot more publicity than most of the other women that have designed board games. So I tried to articulate that and like come up with examples to pass along to people that wanted to interview more women and just snowballed. And now there's like 200 people on the list. Yeah, it was really in the last year, I think last summer around when George Floyd was killed, feeling like the same thing. A lot of people in the board game industry, which is extremely white, it's even more segregated by race than by gender at this point. I think we're further behind on diversifying in that sense. And a lot of people in the board game industry were sort of spinning their wheels on like, okay, what can we do? And I was like, okay, there are people in the industry help you with this and might be interested in the projects that you're starting. Interested in being on your podcast so that you can like interview some people who aren't white guys on your podcast or whatever. I think that's how a lot of people use that list is like if they're putting together an event and they want a speaker, if they have a podcast where they're, you know, scrambling weekly or monthly to get guests, things like that. It's, it becomes a resource for them to, to bring on different voices. And again, to be normalizing the fact that anyone can do this. I mean, I think that's another way that board game design is a lot like writing that most people start it as a side gig. Mm -hmm. You don't quit your job to go do this. Like anyone can do it. We're all doing it in our spare time. If you have a huge hit, maybe you can quit your job. But most of, most board game designers are just doing it on the side because it's something that they're interested in, that they have a passion to do. I want to go there and talk about the money and the transition from your work as a policy analyst. But I'm so heartened, impressed, and also like how simple it can be 
to open up an industry? And how often do we, when we're in any position, kind of go, well, I don't know what to do. And your story was just so clear. It's like, well, people, come on. And then you create a list on your website. Default to that, just like we do about the climate crisis. We default to there's nothing I can do. Yeah. I find that frustrating. <laughs> so I love your story. So let's talk about making the move from being a poli policy analyst, can I say that word, at the University of Chicago, and now Almost you're- as bad as an ornithologist. It is. I also, have, <laughs> I also have a learning disability, so saying a lot of words is difficult for me, so it's hysterical that I'm making a podcast. But now you're self-employed <laughs> full-time as a game designer. Is that, yeah. So yeah. tell us about that process. Take us in. I mean, so many people listening are like, what is it like to make that leap? Yeah, for me, it was a bit more of a gradual transition because I was already sort of a freelance consultant. So I went from working for the federal government to being a consultant at a consulting firm doing research on the same topics that I had been doing in the government to wanting a little bit more flexibility in my schedule because I was starting to do game design and other things. And so deciding to just do freelance consulting, partly with my old firm, and but just like with more control. The year that Wingspan come, came out, I was still doing part-time consulting on my own um, on health policy stuff. And one of the big projects that I had involved a lot of travel. We were going around interviewing people about the Medicare programs, focus groups with Medicare beneficiaries. So I got nominated for this huge award that's given out in Germany called the Kennerspiel des Jahres, the game of the year. Everyone was like, you have to go to the ceremony. <laughs> you have to go to Germany for this. And I had a site visit scheduled at the same time. And that was like the first crack and like, maybe I, I'm not gonna do both of these things forever. That's um, exactly what happens, I think, to everybody. In some ways, it's the best case scenario. And, and I find a lot of clients and friends and students and myself too, also sometimes the pressing doesn't happen and you have to take the leap and make the commitment and see if it will happen. I sort of made it work for the rest of the year. I like came back from Germany and flew directly to my site visit. I like got out of the first two days that had been scheduled and then like met found a way to keep making it work and jumped right in. <laughs> Kept doing that all summer of like board game convention, site visit, board game convention, site visit. Last January, so right before the pandemic started, January 2020, was my biggest client reached out to me about that same project, which had been an annual project that I had been doing for years and years. And was like, so what do you think? thinking about this year like they knew that I was on my way uh, and I was like yeah I just can't do the back and forth like whiplash between and all that travel and then it all became irrelevant like I probably could have done it this year <laughs> that was sort of the, the last draw looking at my schedule for the year and knowing that I was hypothetically going to all these board game conventions and things like that and, and just wanting the time like feel pretty busy is the process of getting a game published similar to publishing a book that do you pitch a bunch of different publishers are there just a few there are sort of two tracks that people go on and i guess this is kind of, actually kind of parallel to books too right so there's the whole self-publishing track okay. like you can go on kickstarter and raise money and and people commit to buy a copy of your game and do it that way and then you're responsible for getting it manufactured and getting it shipped out and 
And they're kind of, comp- you know, there are companies that are used to working with or self-publishing. The road has been smoothed before you, but there's certainly a lot of pieces that you're handling. Just yourself. like a book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or you can pitch to a publisher. There are a lot of publishers, but there are sort of different tiers, right? There's like the Hasbro's of the world where like you're going to sell millions of copies of your game. And there's the next tier down. Big publishers that are putting up several games, you're definitely going to sell thousands, tens of thousands. And then there are little indie publishers who are like, you know, we're happy to sell a couple thousand copies of your game. That'll be a success. And that's a totally legit, like your game is out in the world and several thousand people are enjoying it. And that's awesome too. This has changed a bit over the last year. You can pitch to publishers online and that's been happening a lot in the last year of like setting up a video conference and maybe playing your game virtually with them or sending them a physical copy that they can mess around with. But historically, it's been going to these big board game conventions and scheduling meetings with people. And the publishers will have staff that are just like back-to-back meetings all day, every day of the convention meeting with designers and looking at their games. Do they play the game? Somebody bring your game in and say, I'm really excited about this and everybody plays it and goes, I hate this or I love it or- bit, Yeah, so so at the convention often you'll have like a half hour and you might show them the game. And if it goes well, they'll say, okay, you know, either leave us a copy here or mail it to us when we get back to our office, that kind of thing. When I pitched Wingspan, actually a bunch of people were like, don't give us anything now, but we're we're going to go back and think about all the meetings that we had. And then we will request first level that you have to make, make it through is even like being good enough for them to ask for a copy. Sure. And sure. Then, That's your book proposal. Right. And then they do, they sit down and play it maybe a bunch of times and decide whether they actually want to sign it. Even once it's signed, there's a whole process that's parallel to the editing process, uh, which in board game design is called development. So you get a developer assigned to you from most larger publishers. Some smaller ones don't really have the capacity and they're just publishing what you gave them. Both Wingspan and Mariposas were with the publisher for about a year, like with us going back and forth of like, what if we did this? What if we did this? Changing a bunch of things about the way it played. But they'd already said yes, so you knew. But, they had, but it was already signed with right. them. Yeah. And do they give you an advance like in pu- uh, book publishing? They can often, mm-hmm. not always. It's something you can negotiate. So if you're with a the publisher, they're the ones that go off and get the art and then handle get the distribution. all of the manufacturing and then mm-hmm. the publicity and all that stuff. Hey, sometimes we don't create out loud because we think, why bother? It's all been done. I have nothing original to say. Who cares about me? I'm not so-and-so. I have something for free that might help you with that. It's a chapter from my latest book, Why Bother? (laughs) Discover the desire for what's next. And inside you'll find just the beginning of a radical reframe around this rhetorical question, why bother? So go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash book and you can get that free chapter right away. Give it a quick read and keep an open mind that maybe your rhetorical question of why bother can really be changed and you can find that energy and clarity to create out loud. jenniferloudon.com forward slash book. Thanks. How have you learned about marketing. I mean, you've had to learn to pitch the game. You've right. had, I'm sure you've had, you've had to learn to do publicity. Here you are with me. Tell me this, because in book publishing, you cannot rely on your publisher to yeah. market your book. They don't actually know how to market books. It's the weirdest thing. Is that true in gaming? I can't imagine it's true in gaming, but is it, or is it just like, yes, they'll do this part and I need to do this part? Yes and no. 
in the sense that most publishers, I think, have like a following of people. Both the folks that have, all, the, all three of my publishers, I would say they have a set of people that they know are their core audience that are going to buy like most of the games that they put out. Okay. If, with Stonemeyer that did Wingspan, like there are people that are going to buy a game from Stonemeyer no matter what. You know, and they're only putting out a game or two a year. And they oh, like, okay. the judgment of the publisher and like Jamie Stegmeyer likes this game, the head of Stonemaier Games, and I'm going to like it and I'm going to buy it. So that's like a huge, you know, huge push for the marketing right there. Just having that following, which is the thing if you self-publish, if you're going to Kickstarter, you are starting from scratch. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. People don't do like any sort of mass market marketing, right? Like with books, you'll see ads and magazines mm -hmm. or something like the margins are pretty low in in board games and there's so you'll see marketing in the sense of going to conventions you'll see stuff on social media but there isn't necessarily like a big marketing budget in terms of like print or other kinds of advertising and then and that yeah, only happens it for... really is stuff like going on the podcasts and mm -hmm. yeah it's a fair it's the same the only people who get those big print budgets or you know, they're the big proven authors. They're not the, the mid-list and they're certainly not the small authors. No one's going to put any money into that. That's part of what's happened with publishing over the years is it's gotten more and more of an entertainment mindset. So let's bet on Stephen King. Let's not bet on right. Elizabeth. Uh, right. And I think that's another, you know, we were talking about the diversity in, in the mm -hmm. world of the designers. And I think that's another thing that perpetuates that if all of the popular designers have been a bunch of white guys in Europe and they're the ones that all the publishers want because they know they'll be able to sell their games like it just perpetuates it all over again it does learning to market yourself and learning to market the games sounds like it's been more fun and natural for you than a big stretch or am i am i making that up <laughs> that's mostly true well and you know with wingspan it was pretty easy because it, it was such a hit it was yeah. such a hit from the beginning which blew my mind like i was just not expecting that at all well clearly the publisher wasn't either <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly and i think he was expecting to sell more copies than i had been able to wrap my head around just because he knew what his base number that he can sell no matter what so what are you creating next I know you can't probably tell us a lot, but <laughs> a little, you know, just like the process or what's, what's exciting to you or, yeah, you know, yeah. this idea of you create what you love and what you're interested in. So what are you loving about it right now? Right. This new game? I, I am very excited to get back to in-person play testing in the foreseeable future. Like, Vaccinations. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that's going to happen sometime in the next couple months, at least with like my core group of folks that I do stuff with in DC, maybe not larger public stuff yet, but mm -hmm. like the guys I hang out with on Wednesday afternoons, the four of us, like we'll, we should be ready soon, I think. So that's super exciting and getting me more excited to work on stuff. Yeah. So I have one game that's signed with the publisher and in sort of that limbo of the development process and figuring out like where, how can it be still even better than what I pitched to them? And then I have a couple other things that are just in the very beginning stages. I keep saying I want to do a mushroom game. I'm a big I see. I saw that in your media. Mushroom game. I'm like, magic mushrooms? <laughs> I mean, they are one species of mushroom. But <laughs> more for me, the concept is this phenomenon that really people have just been figuring out in the last 20, 30 years that mushrooms and trees are trading nutrients underground. Years ago, I was working on a fantasy novel. It never made it, but that was how the magic was going to oh. be 
magified. <laughs> it was going to go through the <laughs> trees and through all. And then I read Underland. It's Underland by Robert McFarlane, but also, of course, Overstory. Yes. And it's something that just like with Wingspan, where I was like, oh, birds need resources, right? There's This is like an obvious to me game of like resources are getting traded. Like that is a thing that we do in board games. Um, so it should work, but I got to figure it out. Elizabeth, it's so exciting to meet you and to think about this process. I can just be inside your mind a little bit and how all these elements come together. It's so fascinating and multidimensional. I love to ask my... Uh, guests, one last question. What will you learn next? And one of the things with the games that I work on is that there's actually a fair amount of learning that I have to do in the research for the game. So I've I can tell them. Reading... I bet that's exciting to you. I can see yeah. your face light up. <laughs> so I've been reading a lot about mycorrhizal relationships between mushrooms and trees and, and how that all like actually physically is working and like what it's moving where and that, that kind of thing. Learning is exciting. Well, we'll be playing your games. So hopefully we'll be playing them soon in person with our friends and family. And I really thank you for your time. Thank you. This has been fun. Well, who knew all this about game designing? I am like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to play Wingspan. My husband thinks he's going to do really well at it because he's a birder, but Elizabeth told me on the slide, doesn't matter if you're a birder or not. I also am so excited about this just very straightforward way that Elizabeth has helped raise awareness of other game designers, people of color, black women, women in the game designing space to the gatekeepers and the bloggers and the uh, game reviewers. How could you do that? How could I do that? I've tried different um, experiments over time. I'm certainly trying to have a more diverse voices on the podcast, but it really gives us food for thought. Hey, what are you going to take away from the show? I think I forgot to ask you last time. What is the one thing you're going to take away? Maybe that's it. Trying to raise awareness, uh, spread the love of other creators in your space. Or maybe it's about getting together with people and sharing your work in progress the way that Elizabeth has to do. I think we all have to do it. It's just game designing. You really, really see that you have to do it. You can't move forward without it. What's the one thing you're going to put in your creative toolkit? And next week, we're going to talk to Grace Harry. And dig this. She is a joy strategist. Oh, what? Yeah, I didn't know what that was either. But it wasn't the kind of conversation I thought it was going to be. I thought it might be kind of fluffy and silly and hula hoops and tutus, but it was really almost disturbing in how it changed my ideas about joy and freedom, but in a good way, you know, like when you really need something shooken up and fun and play, which I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to not have enough of that in my life. So come back next week for Grace Harry. And in the meantime, if you are not on my email list, come on by jenniferloudon.com and give me your email address and we will send you a chapter of my newest book, Why Bother? And a chance to get a chapter of my Get Your Bother On journal that stands alone from the book and some other goodies. So if that appeals, if you like this podcast and you're like, oh, I think I'd like to know a little bit about Jen, then come on over and check that out or give me a, a thumbs up on Apple podcast and a review. Either one fabulous or hey, maybe just go create out loud because that's the most important thing that happens on this show. Feeding your creativity, your truth, your bravery, your courage. See you next week.